Turn your Bibles, if you would, please, today to the first book of Samuel. First Samuel. We are now doing a series through First uh, and Second Samuel. Sean had started it off uh, last Sunday, and we're going to pick it up where he left off. Uh, but what I'd like to do is go ahead and, and read from the beginning for those of you who, who weren't here to get some idea of, of what's going on and the essence of, of what we're going to be preaching on this morning. First Samuel chapter 1. Now there was a certain man of Ramath Theam Zophim of Mount Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, and Epathrite. And he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. And this man went up out of his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, and the priest of the Lord were there. And when the time was that Elkanah offered, he gave to Penina his wife and to all her sons and her daughters portions. But unto Hannah he gave a worthy portion, for he loved Hannah. But the Lord had shut up her womb. And her adversary also provoked her sore, for to make her fret, because the Lord had shut up her womb. And as he did so, year by year, when she when she went up to the house of the Lord, so she provoked her, therefore she wept and did not eat. Then said Elkanah, her husband, to her, Hannah, Why weepest thou? And why eatest thou not? And why is thy heart grieved? Am not I better to thee than ten sons? So Hannah rose up after they had eaten in Shiloh, and after they had drunk. Now Eli the priest sat upon a seat by a post of the temple of the Lord, and she was in bitterness of soul and prayed unto the Lord and wept sore. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thy handmaid and remember me and not forget thy handmaid, but will give unto thy handmaid a man-child, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall no razor come upon his head. Let's pray. Father, we come into the most holy of holies to the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask that you would cleanse us today and that you would remove any hindrance or obstacle that would keep us from hearing what you'd have to tell us this morning, what you'd have to speak to us this morning, Lord. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Let us glorify and magnify our Lord through the preaching and the listening to the Word of God. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit this morning would open up the hearts of your people. Those of them who do not know you would come to know you today. And to those who do know you, that they would grow in faith. That there would be something in this message this morning that would so penetrate their soul and awaken them to a deeper reality in a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, our goal this morning 
is to exalt Christ. So Lord, help us do that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. The verse I'd like to focus on this morning is really picking up in verse 6 and 7, which says, And her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. So it was year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord that she provoked her. Therefore, she wept and did not eat. I've titled this message this morning with the title of Year by Year. Taken from verse 7, describing Hannah's patience as she tolerated the abuse of what the Bible calls her rival. I've listed three essential points taken uh, from the narrative of Hannah's life that we would do well to imitate. These points define the most striking features of Hannah's life, and that is simply her patience. The three points for our message today, the first one being is Hannah's reproach. How do we live in a world that reproaches us as believers? I look, I'd like to look at Hannah's perseverance or endurance or her patience. And number three, I'd like to take a look at Hannah's prayer. And how all of these embody, really, her patience and drive and determination and faithfulness and loyalty to her God. The first one being Hannah's reproach. The Bible says in verse 6 that her rival provoked her severely. It even goes on to say to make her miserable. Another translation says, would provoke her and taunt her viciously, so much so to make her tremble. If this gives you any idea at all what this young lady was going through, is tremendous. And the outcome of her life, which we're not going to get to that point today, but I would like to take a view at this portion of her life, this point in her life, and how she reacted, how she overcame the abuse of another, how she was able to keep her eyes focused upon the Lord, being as what she would be defined as in her culture and in her day as a reproach, one who was barren, one who could not have child, a man-child she so desired. Why? Was it that a woman, a Jewish woman so desired, an Israelite would desire to have a man-child? Because her thoughts were that this could be the seed line to the Messiah. That they would bear the promises of God within their womb. That they would be a part of God's redemptive purposes for humanity. She was treated in such a way not because of her attitude, but because the Lord had closed her womb. It wasn't, any, it wasn't any fault of her own. It wasn't anything that she did. It wasn't any great sin that she committed. But the Lord himself had ordained this for his own purposes and for his own glory. It was the Lord who shut up her womb. It was the Lord who was responsible 
for the abuse that she was taking even from Penina. What was the idea? What was God's way? What was God's means and reasons behind all of this? And I believe it's the same today for each and every one of us. That God allows these things into our lives to transform us. That his name would be glorified. That our hearts, even at some times, would be tested at some level to where our obedience lies. Whom do we serve? What is it in our lives that we most desire? Where do our affections go when times get tough? What do we run to? What is your default? What do you go to, as we call it, our go-to, when things get bad? Well, here very clearly it shows during Hannah's reproach from Penina that she went to the Lord. She was greatly distressed because it was a great reproach to a woman among the Jews to be barren. Because, say some, everyone hoped that the Messiah should spring from her line. But we can't forget what Hebrews says. Hebrews 13, 13, it says, Therefore, let us go forth to him outside of the camp, bearing his reproach. Therefore, let us go forth to him, bearing his reproach. The Bible said that Penina was her rival. Rival means her competitor, the antagonist, as you may say. Someone who had been probably very, very envious. They were basically in competition with one another. Hannah basically wanted children, specifically a son. And Penina wanted her husband's admiration, affection, and love. Elkanah loved Hannah. He had been married to her for 10 years before Penina ever came into the picture. For the Bible says, for he loved her even though the Lord had closed her womb. So you can kind of see what's going on here. You can kind of see how the story unfolds. It's easy just to look at Hannah, look at her issues, look at the harassment that she's going through and be angry with Penina. But you can also look at Penina's plight as well. That her husband's been married to Hannah for 10 years and now she has been chosen to bear his children. Almost like I'm second in line. Even though I'm bearing you children, that does not replace the affection and love that a woman desires from her husband. Because the scriptures very clearly say that he loved Hannah. Even though the Lord had closed her, her womb. But you see, God's, the word of God warns us about these types of relationships. In Leviticus 18, 18, it says, Do not take your wife's sister. Now, I know they weren't sisters, but the principle is very clear. As a rival wife. And have sexual relations with her while your wife is living. There's really nothing good that comes out of polygamy. Now, we know that God had, had allowed it uh, throughout the Old Testament to populate and to repopulate Israel. But the reality is, is that polygamy came into being after man had fallen. And it's interesting because we see um, in the book of Genesis, chapter 4, verse 19, it says, Then Lamech took for himself two wives. And it begins. And this is where you see polygamy. But also we see God's warning even to kings of, of what can happen with taking on 
many wives or more wives than God had ordained. As we read here in the Deuter in Deuteronomy 7.17, Neither shall the king multiply wives for himself, lest his heart be turned away. The principle is still the same, even though it's for a king, even though the scriptures tell us very clearly not to have two relationships together here because of what it can create, the animosity that goes on here, as we can see in the life of Hannah and in the life of Penina, the animosity between the two. In the garden, when God created humans in his image, he created a man and a woman. He created two in his two in the likeness of himself. In the image of God, he created them. Not three. Not four. God's system was with two people. That's God's original design from the book of Genesis is two people. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. But because of sin, because of man's rebellion in the garden, sinning against God, sin came into the world. And the Bible says the whole world became guilty before God. And because sin became, came into the world, what do we get from that? We see polygamous relationships start to begin in the book of Genesis. And because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, the scriptures say her rival would provoke her and taunt her viciously. And this went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival taunted her until she wept and could not eat. Have you ever been in a position in your life where someone or something has so taunted you that your appetite literally leaves you? Yeah. School stress? But if you've been in a relationship before, you know, toxic relationships to where, you know, sometimes even marriages can come to a certain point where one spouse will be such a way to the other where they almost feel at times that they're in a situation that's toxic and full of bitterness. And sometimes those relationships can become so toxic that at points we don't even want to eat. But the Lord says that offenses will come. And Paul said in his word, do not be bitter at our wives. So we know that bitterness is toxic. Jesus gave us the remedy though in Luke chapter 6 verse 22 and he says, blessed are you. If you want to learn how to deal with a toxic relationship or a toxic person, here's a great way to do it. Blessed are ye when men shall hate you and when they shall separate you from their company, reject you, and shall, what? Reproach you and cast your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Pray for them, Jesus said. Those who, what? Despitefully use you. Have you ever had anybody despitefully use you before for their own gain or because they're so greedy and selfish? Well, the Bible says to bless them, to pray for them. This is how you deliver yourself out from a very toxic mindset in a toxic life. That is the remedy that Christ gives us. Let us look at Hannah's perseverance. Hannah's perseverance. 
The Bible says, and this went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival taunted her until she wept and could not eat. But we have a promise in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19. It says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, sure and steadfast. You think about, you know, Hannah's life was anchored with her Lord. Obviously, as you read throughout the book of Samuel, which we will even go further than this as the weeks go on, you begin to see how Hannah's life turned out. But one thing you will find out, one of the greatest features of Hannah's life was her devotion to her Lord, her love for God, her love for the house of the Lord and the people of God. And this is one thing that she, I think, was 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 her foundation and her anchor and gave her the ability to be able to carry on through the midst of pain and adversity and abuse was the fact that she had an anchor and her anchor was the Lord. And we have an anchor who is Christ. He is our sure and foundation. He is our only hope and he is steadfast. We must understand that when we're going through times in, you know, I don't want to make Hannah's life all about just abuse and rejection and depression and all these things, but we can't escape the introduction to her life. And I think we do a very sad job if we don't park for a moment and bask in what was going on in her life so we as Christians can get the American Christianity washed out of our mind. We have to understand that Christianity is not just some easy believism some just fun, fun religion. Christianity is following Christ. It's a continual dying to self. Jesus said, all of those who will come after me must deny themselves, not help yourself. Take up your cross, die. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great philosopher and um, Christian said, Jesus bids us to come and die. It's a religion where we come and die. We lay our lives down. We come to the cross. We come to our own funerals daily. Paul said, I die daily. Death is not comfortable. Death to self isn't comfortable. And as long as we're in human bodies, there's always going to be a death to self until we get our glorified bodies. There's going to be a continual struggle. There's going to be a continual fight. That is the Christian life. And I know a lot of times, especially in American evangelicalism, especially in this country, they preach a different gospel. They preach a gospel of life enhancement. Just add Jesus to your life and you'll make everything better like a magic wand. And they look at God like he's some kind of Santa Claus just waiting to bless his spoiled children. But it's nowhere in Scripture. God is a holy and righteous God. And he sent Christ to die for the sins of his people. Christ took upon himself the holy wrath of God, the eternal anger of God upon himself in the place of his people. He bore the full wrath of God upon himself so we could go free. As Ivan said so beautifully this morning, he lived the life that we couldn't live. He satisfied God's law perfectly in our place. He lived for us and died for us. And he rose from the grave, the Bible says, and he defeated death, hell, and the grave. And if you want to defeat death, hell, and the grave, believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the only way. It's the only way. So trust Christ. Realize that he is our anchor. He is the only way.
The Bible says in Proverbs 13, 12, which has been a, a verse that I've really leaned on over the years. It says, a hope deferred maketh the heart sick. But when the desire comes, it is a tree of life. This is Hannah's hope. This is Hannah standing upon the promises of God. This is Hannah remaining obedient to her Lord when everything looked gleam and like nothing was going to work out. And that her life was just going to be filled year in and year out with the abuse from another woman making fun of her and mocking her every time she went to the temple without children. This could have been her lot in life until she passed away, but she trusted in the Lord. She was anchored in the Lord. She's able to persevere through all of this, through all of the pain, through all of the darkness. And don't tell me that there was no pain and darkness in her life because there was. It's all in here for us to read. Hope deferred maketh the heart sick, but when it comes, it's a tree of life. What makes it a tree of life? What makes it so beautiful when it does come? It's because it was deferred. And you spent time in what the Bible calls that sickness which I call sanctification. It's in that sickness where you grow. It's in that sickness where your faith is increased. It's in that sickness where you're truly tested to the one you truly love. It's in those times of darkness where you truly cling to Christ. It's God's training ground for holiness. It stretches us. It shapes us. It molds us more into the image of Christ. It's about Christ. Christ died for us to give us to God, to himself. And this is what it's all about. So much so in Proverbs 24, 10, it says, If thou faint in the day of adversity, thy strength is small. Paul talked about a mastery. He talked about a mastery, and every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. That we're to, we're to strive for mastery in the Christian faith. I'm not talking about trying to earn God's favor through good works, but to be skilled. To be, have mastery, have self-control over our lives. This really shows the evidence of God's power working through you that when you have the ability to say no to sin and yes to God. There's a strength that the Lord gives you. The Bible says that the Lord is your strength. You don't rely on your own strength because we all crumble if we rely on our own strength. But here it is the Lord himself that grants us the strength to carry on and to have mastery and temperance over our lives as Christians. <clears throat> in 1 John 2, it says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. For everything that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires are passing away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Even though we're looking at the life of Hannah, it's still there. The pride and envy, it's still there. The greed, it's still there. The desire for prominence and power and authority, it's still there. But the impatient and the idolatrous heart has no desire to wait, but would rather satisfy its lust of greed by going another route, hoping to succeed in the same way. One of the conquering sins of Israel throughout the pretty much the Old Testament was the sin of what was called the Ashtaroth poles, or Asherah, you could call it. There's many names that it goes by. It's an idol. It's false gods. 
that came out from the Canaanites that Israel themselves were warned by God not to mix with the Canaanites. Don't worship Asherah. Don't go there. Don't mix with them because of what can happen. The whole idea of the Asherah pole was to come to Asherah, who was, who was known as the god of fertility. And Israel would go there. Even it was said historically that many of the women who couldn't give birth, who were barren, would secretly go to these poles. And they would seek this god Asherah so they too could be fertile and have children. They could go the route of idolatry. They could go the route of being impatient and running off to some idol to try to somehow secure what only God could give them. It's predominant throughout all of Scripture. Even look, I find this absolutely amazing because Samuel was the promise of God for Hannah, right? God gave her a son. And later on, guess what we find her son doing? Well, in 1 Samuel 7, 3, we see this. And Samuel said to all of the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. He said, turn away from the God of fertility and turn to the God of the Bible. Why do I know? Because I am literally a promise of the Lord. Because my mother kept to the anchor of her soul and didn't give up. Sought the Lord. And no longer was barren. And I came to be the product of her faithfulness and God's grace. Therefore, he turns on that idol of the Israelites in that day and he confronts them in their sin. I believe he has a great place to stand with that. 1 Samuel 12.10 says, And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. But now deliver us out of the hands of our enemies that we may serve you. You know, Ashtoreth is not just something back in the days of Israel. And we no longer see that. It was, it was, Ashtoreth had all kinds of different names. She went by all different kinds of names. The Queen of Heaven, Ashtar, Ishtar, Many different names from different groups. The Romans, and uh, every, every people group had their own name for the same God. But ultimately, she was seen as the queen of heaven. But even the spirit of that permeates our culture today. And we've got to be careful as well that we're not drifting off into idolatry. I'm not talking about looking uh, for something for fertility in the sense, but the poles, there was illicit sex, was there. Prostitution was there. All kinds of sexual immoral, immorality was known to take place around the pole of Asherah. But the thing about it was this. It was done in secrecy, so we don't have a lot of history on exactly what happened. Because why? It was secret. Because sexual immorality loves secrecy, right? It loves secrecy. It loves to hide. And because of that, we don't have a lot, of, a lot of history on what exactly happened. Other than in the times where in Rome, where this worship was taking place, it would be just women going in there. Sometimes men would sneak in and they would watch some of the ceremonies that would, would happen uh, in the midst of all of this. And it was quite heinous. It was really the God of illicit sex. And that goes by many names in our culture. And I think many of us know those names. 
And I will not repeat those names because we have little ears in the house. Which brings us to the last point, Hannah's prayer. Hannah's prayer. So Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord, and she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. And then she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you'll indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a man-child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall come upon his head. We could go a little bit more into the Nazarite vow. We're not going to do that. But the essence of what's being spoken here is this, that her desire for a child is not for herself. The greatest apex of her happiness is to have a man-child. It's not because she could have him for herself. But she loved God. And she wanted to give him to the Lord. I mean, think about that. That her agonizing pain and her bitterness of soul was to please the Lord. With a male son. It wasn't about her getting a baby. I have seven children. So I love children. I love little babies. I love having children in the house. It just delights my soul. Kids just delight my soul. But her delight was for her to have children so she could offer her child up to the Lord. Gives you any idea her motive and her ambitions were pure. And her butt, this also shows that her love for God was deep. The most striking features of Hannah's story is her unfailing loyalty to her God. Her life was a testimony to a faithful God who always comes through on his promises. It's worth noting that Hannah, who was consoled by her husband during her pain of being barren, in verse 8 it says, Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? You know the answer to that question is? No. No. Because you know what? Offspring, having children, is not your husband. Your husband's not your child, even though he may act like it. The reality is, she's talking about that nothing can replace my desire for a child. And I, when, you, when you read about Elkanah reaching out to her this way, you know, it's loving but have you ever had someone give you loving advice at the wrong time? Try to reach out to you when you're in agony with, with just advice or why? Have you ever seen someone that's clinically depressed, biologically just can't help it, and you got someone telling them just be happy, just smile, why are you so sad? And it just ministers to them the wrong way. But they have the right motive. They want to help. They ask the person, why are you so sad? Why are you so downcast? Am I not worth 10 sons? No, you're not. I love you, but listen, you're a two-timer as well. You've got another wife. I don't care what time frame you put in. Human beings are the same from the beginning until today. You tell any woman that she's got to share her man with another, with herself, you've got to share one man between the two, I don't care what time frame or what portion of history you lived in. You're not going to like it. Period. And there's something about that there that's true that we don't ever want to talk about. But the reality is, is that he's a polygamist. Now, we know that God used it for his glory and things sprung out of that 
through God's grace and through his mercy, which was beautiful. Let us not neglect that. But the reality is, is that what do you expect? What do you expect? You're having with another woman and having children with another lady. So she wants a man-child to give to the Lord. And nothing can satisfy that. Nothing can bring that type of satisfaction of what she is looking for. And I do credit Elkanah for his desire to help his wife, to be there for her. But we also have to realize people are people. They have human hearts as well. They have emotions too. They feel too. Women feel that. This is why God created only two in the garden. And God put Adam to sleep and he brought his wife to him. Okay, he didn't bring two wives with him. He brought one. Two doesn't, doesn't work. Okay, God in his grace can take something bad and make something good out of it. Don't get me wrong. But the reality is, is that in her being, in her very makeup of how she's designed, it's not acceptable. In her bitterness, Hannah prayed to the Lord and wept with many tears, and she made a vow pleading, O Lord of hosts, if you look upon my affliction and your maidservant, remember me, not forgetting your maidservant, but giving her a son, that I will dedicate him to the Lord. As a matter of fact, in chapter 2, verse 19, not getting too far ahead of ourselves, Samuel's mother used to make him a little robe and bring it to him year by year when she came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Her hope was not in the child, but in her God. Not just in the fulfillment of the promise made to her, but to all those looking to Christ. Finishing here in Luke one thirty-five, speaking of a similar situation, Gabriel, when he came to Mary, said the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Look even... Elizabeth, your relative, has conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren, she who was called barren is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. It is probable, it is probable that Elizabeth got this greeting by way of reproach, or to distinguish her from some other Elizabeth also well-known, who had been blessed with children. He just wanted, when the, when the scripture was written, when Gabriel was speaking, he wanted to identify her from another Elizabeth by letting her know, this is the one who was called barren. By the way, just so you know, this is the reproach. She's, had, she's, had, she's with child. And we know that child was as John the Baptist, who was the one ordained of God to usher in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Luke one twenty five says, Elizabeth cried out, Thus has the Lord done to me in the days in which he looked at me to take away my reproach among men. And I'll tell you this morning, the Lord has taken away the, repro the reproach of your sin through Christ. But he has not taken away the reproach of the world. Remember that. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 2.16, To the one, to the world, remember this. We are the aroma of death, leading to death. And to the other, we are the aroma of life leading to life. That'll never go away. 
to the world, you'll always be that aroma of death because you speak of only one way to Christ. There's only one way to God. As John 14, 6 says, Christ said it. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And to the world, let me just tell you, that is an aroma of death. But to some, it will come to life. She had endurance and perseverance because she was anchored in the Lord. She had patience. Just remember, according to Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, perseverance in your life is possible. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, we must get rid of every weight and the sin that clings so closely and run with endurance the race set out for us, keeping our eyes, keeping our eyes fixed on Christ, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set out for him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. Think of him who endured such opposition against himself by sinners, since you may not grow weary in your souls and give up. That is the message for us this morning, year by year. Many of us, it's day by day. And for some of us, it's moment by moment. Fix your eyes upon Christ, the one in whom your soul is anchored. It's okay to be a reproach to the world. It's okay to love Christ more than anything else. It's okay to be called weird and strange, be alienated from everything because of your faith. Because the Bible says life is like a vapor. Soon and very soon, you'll be home for all eternity. Just remember this. Life is short. It is fleeting. It is passing us by. Be ready. Make sure your faith is grounded in Christ. Persevere. Endure. Have godly patience. Don't give up. I don't care what you've done or what kind of sins that you've committed or what kind of garbage you've been eating out of. Trust me, you cannot out the grace of God. God's grace reaches further. That's why Christ died upon the cross. You have an advocate. The Bible says that God's mercies are new every day. Do you realize you can start over today, brand new, fresh in Christ? And pray. Be a man or woman of prayer. Seek the Lord. Love Him. Don't pray just to be religious so people can see and you can go tell people how long you prayed. Just, just seek the Lord and love Him. Have a relationship with Him. Talk to Him. Seek His face. Adore Him. Call upon His name. He's an ever-present help in the time of trouble. He's always there. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this day. Lord, we love you. We worship you. We ask, oh God, that the words that were preached today, Lord, the words that came from you, Lord, would stick to us today. That it reshape us and form us, Lord. That we just walk out of this building and go, okay, that was a great message, and off we go down the street, not changed. As a man would look at himself in a mirror and walk away and forget what he looks like. Imprint this upon us, Lord. Change us for your glory. Help us to persevere, Lord God, under tremendous reproach, especially in our day, from the church world and from the world itself. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.